Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is a crowd podcast. It's December in New York City. A cold time, usually. Icy winds off the Atlantic and up the Hudson. Snow flurries and dark clouds. A time to stay inside, to hide out. But something feels different today. It's warm this day in 1980. A sleet shower in the middle of the night and then a clear morning. 17 degrees. Enough to leave your coat in your apartment. To stand out on the sidewalk and talk. John Lennon looks good. He's 40 now, an old man by rock standards, compared to how he was when he first came to this city. The girls screaming. The news crews fighting to get their shots. The debut on The Ed Sullivan Show from the CBS studios over on Broadway. The start of it all, the mania, the adoration, the madness. The four of them, a tight gang, sharp kids out of Liverpool. Always the same order when you say their names. John, Paul, George, Ringo. When you think of John, you see the different looks from down the years. Maybe you're thinking about those early days. Dark suit, white shirt, black tie, hair combed forward. Easy smile, all quick wit and excitement. Maybe it's John as they grew. Hair longer, face fatter. Smoking weed and eating more. The sunburst yellow and orange of his Epiphone casino guitar. Maybe it's the granny glasses and military moustache of Sergeant Pepper. The long hair and big beard of Abbey Road. The anger in his eyes when his tight gang splits wide open. Today? Today looks... normal. Check shirt, dark round neck jumper, dark brown hair swept back, no grey... No beard. Sunglasses with yellow rims. He looks healthy. That's what strikes you. He looks settled. Like all the angers burned away. Like he's found a peace in this foreign city far across the sea. Yoko's alongside him. She's always alongside him now. The rows, the breakups, the affairs. They feel like they're all over. The two of them have lasted after everything. Because the madness kicked on with John. The heroine snorted from a little bottle on a chain around his neck, his eyes pinned and empty. The political slogans, big ones, empty ones, silly ones, staying in bed for a week, what he called his lost weekend, if a weekend could last a year and a half. Away in Los Angeles, drinking, carousing, sleeping about, destroying himself so he could build himself up again, a new man, a better man, And it seemed to be working. He started making music, years without picking up a guitar, and there's a new single and an album just out in the stores on Times Square. Okay, half of it's Yoko. That's why they've called it Double Fantasy. A John track, a Yoko track, alternating all the way through. 
Maybe not the way you want it, but the way she wants it. And what Yoko wants, John gives. It's not the Beatles. It's, well, quite middle-aged. There's a review from back in England, The Melody Maker, one of the big music weeklies. They're all about post-punk and new wave, fresh sounds, new sounds. Here's what they say about this version of Lennon. The whole thing positively reeks of an indulgent sterility. It's a god-awful yawn. The best song on the album, maybe? Beautiful Boy. That's the song that makes sense of it all anyway. Because John's a father now, again. He's always had Julian. He just hid him away. The Beatles started, and the idea John had a wife and kid just didn't work. So he kept Cynthia secret, and he kept the kid that made them marry a secret too. Julian's 17 now. They're trying to reconnect. John says, He's still my son. Whether he came from a bottle of whiskey or because they didn't have pills in those days. Nice. But it's Sean who his life is wrapped around now. Who he gave the music up for. Feeding him, cleaning him, changing nappies. Bedtime stories, morning walks. The great rock and roll rebel, now a house husband. Baking bread, eating clean. So it's all calm and it's all warm because no one knows what's coming. No one knows what this day will bring. This day, mild enough to linger on the sidewalk, to stop and chat, to make time for people because there's someone else in town, someone with their own version of Lennon in their head, with a story they want to write. The madness is about to come back. It's the morning in New York. John and Yoko are at home. Everyone knows the Dakota building round here. 100 years old, all pale brown stone, high gables and steep sloping roofs. There's a great arch over the main door, black metal gates, a courtyard beyond. It's like a grand town hall from some rich German town, dropped into this non-stop new world city. Straight over the road and you're into Central Park. Stay in, and it's big windows in your apartment and history everywhere you look. The interesting ones have always stayed here. The singers, the actors, the poets. Lauren Bacall and Leonard Bernstein a few years back. And it's home now for this famous little family, after years of fighting, of thinking they're not wanted. Those big political statements got Lennon in trouble. The US government listened in in the early 1970s. Richard Nixon listened in. John released Give Peace a Chance. He put out another single, Happy Christmas, War is Over. He can sing them both. He can always sing Lennon tunes. Nixon doesn't hear peace. He doesn't hear goodwill. He thinks, this guy could fuck me over. The Beatle guy's famous. They love him. If he comes out against me, we might lose the election. So Nixon made a Nixon play. He tried to get Lennon deported got the US Immigration Service to jump up this charge based on John's conviction for cannabis possession in London years before. It takes four years for John to win out. Court hearings and endless appeals. It takes Watergate and the end of Nixon. So now New York is home and it's their place. A sanctuary, a place to grow older. Somewhere people are used to fame where they look once 
and move on. But we need to talk about this other man, this other visitor. He arrived two days ago, a flight from Hawaii. He's 25 years old, podgy, 5 foot 10, wears glasses, shorter hair, sensible clothes. He's staying at the Sheraton on 7th Avenue. He's not rich, but it's the location he likes. It's close to the park. It's only a mile or so to the Dakota, not even 20 minutes walk if you cut up Broadway. His name? Mark Chapman. Ordinary name, ordinary face. He hasn't brought much with him. A small bag, some cash. Ordinary name, but a strange man in a strange time. He's got a new wife back in Hawaii and she's worried about him. They've talked on the phone the night before, about getting help with problems, how he needs to talk to God to sort his head out. A strange man acting strangely. Here's what he's done the day before. He's gone walking, spotted James Taylor, the singer-songwriter, coming out the subway on 72nd Street, right next to the Dakota. You look once and move on in New York, unless you're Mark Chapman. He sees James Taylor and he pins him to the wall. He's sweating, maniacal. That's what Taylor thinks. He's ranting about all this stuff he's gonna do, how he's connected to John Lennon, how he's gonna find Lennon, sort something out with him. Taylor wriggles free and gets away fast, thinks, what the fuck was all that about? The freak speak. Chapman, he gets a cab back to the hotel, starts speed-talking to the cabbie, offers him cocaine, stares and sweats. This morning, he's up early, leaves his stuff in his hotel room, goes out and buys a copy of a book, takes a pen and writes something inside the cover, buys a copy of Double Fantasy. Then he walks, along 53rd, up Broadway, round Columbus Circle, north on Central Park West. You can look right and see the trees in the park, the carousel, the lake. He's by the Dakota, walks up to the entrance, talks to the fans hanging round outside, to the doorman in his tall hat and dark wool coat. He talks, and he forgets stuff too. Forgets to look round when he hears a cab pull up and a door open. Doesn't see John Lennon stepping out and walking past the doorman. But he notices other things. An hour later, he spots the Lennon's nanny. She's been out with five-year-old Sean, taking him out for a walk in the park. Chapman steps out in front of her, stares at her, reaches out and shakes Sean's hand, says... He is a beautiful boy, isn't he? Quoting the song, lifting up the record. It's a warm day in New York City, and everyone smiles. Why wouldn't you? Before we talk about the afternoon, we have to talk about two books. The first one is called One Day at a Time, and it's by a guy called Anthony Fawcett who'd hung round with the Beatles in the late 60s, been John and Yoko's personal assistant. It's been out four years, but Chapman's only just got a copy. There's stuff that sticks out for him. How John's not living out in Surrey anymore, but at the Dakota. How he lives his life, how he spends his money, how much he has, when Chapman thinks John's told him to imagine no possessions. The second book you'll know the Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger, 
the classic story of teenage angst and alienation. The main character called Holden Caulfield, set in New York, sells a million copies a year every year. That's the one Mark Chapman buys again that morning. The one that rages against phonies, about adults who are hypocrites who let you down. Why? Here's why. There's things you need to know about Chapman. His US Army dad, the one who beats up his mum. The fantasies he has as a kid where he imagines little people live in his bedroom walls and worship him as a king. That he's bullied at school and on drugs by the time he's 14. When he's 16, he finds God, goes to an evangelical college, drops out early. Gets admitted to hospital with clinical depression after trying to gas himself in his car. He does a six-week trip round Europe, starts seeing the travel agent, a Japanese-American woman. In 1979, he marries her, but that doesn't help. He gets a job as a security guard and starts drinking. That doesn't help either. He gets new obsessions, listens to the Beatles, listens to Lennon, gets obsessed with the solo track, God. That's the one where John tells you he doesn't believe in God or the Beatles. He just believes in Yoko. At Chapman's prayer group, they've got a joke. They sing, imagine if John Lennon was dead. So Chapman rages, says he wants to scream out loud. Who does he think he is, saying these things about God and heaven and the Beatles? He reads Salinger and thinks the book's about him. He's Holden Caulfield. That's what he thinks. Raging against the phonies and the fakes, the hypocrites, the ones who've let him down. He writes a letter to a friend, says to her, I'm going nuts. Signs it, the catcher in the rye. So he books a flight to New York, arrives October 1980, buys a gun, hangs round, tells himself, I'm going to do it. I'm going to kill this phony, this blasphemer. I'm going to shoot John Lennon. He's ready. And then he's watching TV in his hotel room and thinks he sees a message to him on the screen. It says, Thou shalt not kill. And he flies home instead. Back to Hawaii, back to his wife. Shows her the gun and the bullets, tells her everything. I want to kill Lennon. His wife doesn't tell the police, does nothing. There's an appointment to see a psychologist, but Chapman doesn't make it. He's bought himself another plane ticket. He's going back to New York City. So now Chapman's outside the Dakota again. This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Hello, it's Tom Fordyce here. I'm one of the writers on Death of a Rockstar, and I do hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you about better help. Now, we all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people I wrote about for this series absolutely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way your brain works and why you feel a particular way. 
If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist. And you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Rockstar listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash rockstarpod. That's betterhelp.com slash rockstarpod. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. It's the afternoon in New York. People in the park, in the cafes, talking on the sidewalks. John and Yoko and Sean are in their apartment at the Dakota. There's a photographer there, Annie Leibovitz, so famous she's almost a celeb herself. She's shooting a cover for Rolling Stone magazine. Wants John on his own, but Yoko wants him. So the photo she takes away is the two of them lying on the floor, wrapped together. Yoko in black, her long hair spread out behind her. John, naked, knees to his chest like a newborn baby, kissing Yoko's cheek, his left arm curled around her head. Leibovitz leaves about half three. Then John does an interview with a DJ who's come from San Francisco, talking about Sean, his routine, how they watch Sesame Street together. Here's how it ends, the last interview he'll ever do after almost 20 years as one of the most famous men on the planet. Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm a fan of people too, you know? I like people to sign their books when they give them to me and all that. It's close to five now. John's due to go to the recording studio to finish off a new Yoko track. It's at the Record Plant Studios over on Times Square, just past the Sheraton where Mark Chapman's left his stuff. There's a limo waiting to take them, so John goes down in the lift. Kisses Sean goodbye, leaves him with his nanny. He waves to the doorman, walks out into the street. It's dark now, the sun gone an hour ago, and Mark Chapman is right there. There's a photo of that moment taken by a bystander, another Beatles fan. John in a black leather jacket with a fur collar, T-shirt sticking out over the top of his jumper. Chapman's smiling, like it's not quite real. Like Lennon's a mirage, a vision. He reaches behind him and pulls something out. It's the record, double fantasy. Pushes it at John and says, will you sign this for me? The limo's waiting, engine going. John takes his time anyway, takes the pen and gets it working, squiggles his signature on the album, the big black and white picture of him kissing Yoko, both with their eyes shut, gives it back to Chapman, smiles, says, anything else you need? And Chapman looks at him, this 
object of his obsessions, his disenchantment, his hate, and says, No, no, sir. And as Lennon walks away, steps into the car with Yoko, Chapman has another thought. He thinks, What a very cordial and decent man. It's night time now. John and Yoko have been down the studio for almost five hours. He's recording a guitar part for her song. Forget those shitty reviews, they're thinking about another album. Often they'll go straight from the studio to eat. This time, John wants to get home, to say goodnight to his beautiful boy. The food can wait. They make a plan. We'll go to Stage Deli a bit later. The famous old place on 7th Avenue with the dark blue awnings and pink neon sign. You can drive straight into the Dakota's courtyard if you live there, past anyone hanging round outside, safely past the black iron gates. This time, the limo pulls up outside, parks on 72nd Street. The door opens, Yoko steps out, then John. There are shadows close in to the brownstone wall of the building, darkness under the archway. You can hide there, stand and watch and linger. So that's where Mark Chapman waits. Where he sees John Lennon in front of him, touches his chest pocket. He walks quickly into the light. Yoko sees him. He nods at her. John comes level, glances at Chapman, seems to sort of recognise him. You're the kid from earlier. Three more paces, with his back turned to Chapman to the dark night, moving towards the big front door, the five stone steps up to his home. Chapman puts his right hand in his pocket, pulls out the revolver he's brought with him all the way from Hawaii. He lifts it, points, straightens his arm. He's three metres away. He fires five times. It's the noise that stops the street. The bangs like metal exploding. How close it is. How loud. You look at Chapman first, standing there, arms still held out in front of him. This ordinary-looking man in his ordinary clothes. An expression of calm. Smoke curling round his face. Then it's the scream. Lennon is on the steps, on his knees, on his face. There's plastic cassette boxes falling out of his coat pockets. I'm shot, I'm shot. There's blood everywhere, coming out of Lennon's chest, his mouth, on the cassettes, the stone steps. Five bullets, each of them hollow point. You use hollow point if you want accuracy. They don't ricochet and they don't deflect because they don't go through things. They mushroom. That's the word the makers use. Like it's all normal, all natural. One bullet has missed. Hit a window. The other four have gone through John's back and shoulder, puncturing his lung, his artery, mushrooming. Chapman stands there, puts the gun down at his feet, takes off his coat, his hat, lies them down too. Stands there and waits for the police. Not running, not hiding. There's only one thing he keeps holding. It's the copy of the book he's just bought, Catcher in the Rye. There's something he's written inside, that day in his black handwriting, 
neat so the world can read it. He puts, to Holden Caulfield, from Holden Caulfield. This is my statement. The concierge is bent over Lennon, covering up with his uniform jacket, taking off his broken glasses, blood on his hands, on his knees, his shoes. The doorman's outside, screaming at Chapman. Do you know what you've done? And Chapman blinks and holds his book, says, Yes, I just shot John Lennon. It takes two minutes for the police to arrive to see what's happened. Two of them handcuff Chapman, shove him in the back seat of their car. Two more rush to Lennon, see the mess, work it out. We can't wait for an ambulance. We've got to take him to hospital ourselves. And they get there just before 11 at night. And none of it matters. There's something the head of the emergency department says later when they're trying to work it out make sense of something that makes no sense. They say, if he'd been shot this way in the middle of the operating room with a whole team of surgeons ready to work on him, he still wouldn't have survived his injuries. And so news spreads and the world finds out. Maybe you can remember where you were when you heard. Maybe you came to John later, to the Beatles, to the mania and adoration and madness. There's something you'll know, either way. This is a story that stops the world. Wherever you are, whatever you do. The first word? It's on ABC, the big US network. They're showing Monday Night Football, the biggest thing in American sports. It's the New England Patriots against the Miami Dolphins. And it's late in the fourth quarter and the game's tied. Two commentators the nation loves, trusts, a game everyone's watching. And this is what they do. I don't care what's on the line, Howard. You have got to say what we know in the booth. Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game, no matter who wins or loses. An unspeakable tragedy confirmed to us by ABC News in New York City. John Lennon, outside of his apartment building on the west side of New York City, the most famous, perhaps, of all of the Beatles, shot twice in the back, rushed to Roosevelt Hospital, dead on arrival. So, of course, everyone asks why, because none of it makes sense. Chapman? He talks, lots. Says there were others he was thinking about killing. Paul McCartney, Liz Taylor, Ronald Reagan, the new president. Says Lennon was just... convenient. David Bowie? He thinks he was next on the list. He's in a play on Broadway that week. Chapman's bought a front row ticket. So are John and Yoko. And Bowie goes out on stage the night after. And he looks down. And he sees three empty seats. And he breaks down. You try to cope your way. Maybe you go to Central Park with thousands of others. Maybe you go to Liverpool where it all started. Maybe you sit there at home and play the records and think about John, how he looked, what he did to your life. All of us searching for reasons and madness everywhere you look. Three Beatles fans kill themselves in the aftermath. It's too much for them. 
Yoko puts out a new record. The cover of the album, a photo of Lennon's glasses smeared with blood. Another lonely American tries to assassinate President Reagan. He leaves a message saying he's mourning Lennon, says he wants to make some kind of statement. Afterwards, the police find a book he's been reading. It's Catcher in the Rye, again. And so it goes on. The concierge at the Dakota, the one who covered Lennon with his jacket, he sells his blood-stained shirt at auction. Someone buys it for £30,000. And Mark Chapman? He pleads guilty to murder. He gets a life sentence. In 2000, 20 years after his crime, he becomes eligible for parole. It's denied. And denied again. In the last 20 years, he's been denied parole 11 times. He's still in prison. It's unlikely he'll ever get out. But you don't think about Chapman when you think about that mild day in a city far across the sea. You think of John, what he did, what lay ahead. You see the different looks from down the years. The early days and easy smile, the hair growing longer. The glasses and the moustache and the wild beard. The white suits and the sunburst yellow and orange of his epiphone. You think of his tight little gang. How we all felt part of it. Not how it ended, but how it carried us all along. How it changed us all. And everyone smiles. Why wouldn't you? This episode of Death of a Rockstar was written by Tom Fordyce and performed by me, Emma Clark. Our editor was Phil Brown. For research, we read all the classic Beatles books and all the classic John ones. We used the archives of the BBC, The Times, New York Times, Melody Maker, Rolling Stone and Time magazine. The music we used is from our partner's BMG Production Music. Usually at this point, we recommend some songs by the artist. You know John, and you know the Beatles. You probably don't need our help. But if you do, let's go solo, John. Start with Jealous Guy off the Imagine album. Then Number Nine Dream. It just makes you happy and sad at the same time. Then Beautiful Boy off Double Fantasy. And the line that can still break your heart. Life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. If this is your first episode, go and try our one about Elvis or Marvin Gaye. And if you want a new podcast to listen to, check out Crowd's new history podcast called We Didn't Start the Fire. It's inspired by the Billy Joel lyrics and each episode is about a different subject from Beatlemania to Harry Truman, Doris Day and Red China. It's worth listening to. Just search for We Didn't Start the Fire in your podcast app. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. Hey you, do you have any plans this year? Ha! How's that going? Do you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, 
And my good friends Corey Pays and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at 2020-D.com, SoundTalentMedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. Uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little little taste of it, right down to the shaking microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick. And usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work. But we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that, that uh, has impacted your life. Uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers. Think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe to Grind podcast. The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station, it was a lifestyle. Cleveland is, is a rock and roll city for sure. Yeah! Yeah! The Wrath of the Buzzard, WMMS, Cleveland. The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles, The Wrath of the Buzzard, P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts.